please open God's word with me to Paul's letter to the Colossians. The last time we were in Colossians, we we looked at the Apostle Paul's motivation for ministry in chapter 1, verse 24, to chapter 2, around verse 3. But I want to continue on reading down to verse 7 this morning. I want to read all of this to you so that we'll have a foundation for today's sermon. So here are the words of God to the Colossians and to us in Colossians 1, 24. Paul writes this, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. Here Paul, Paul states that he struggled and he toiled and he suffered to teach the church about God's mystery that is contained in the gospel of Christ. And he did so to encourage the body and glorify Christ himself. Paul Paul sets this motivation down in ink here in Colossians. He does this to distinguish his ministry from that of the false teachers. He writes this to distinguish his doctrine and his motives from that of the false teachers who had influenced this congregation. They had, the false teachers that is, they had proclaimed that if you want to be a true Christian, a spiritual Christian, a godly Christian, you must follow their philosophies. You must listen to their special revelations they receive from angels. And you must follow their traditions, their, their rituals. If you don't do these things, if you don't do what they say, if you don't continue on in the things that they have laid down, if you just rest in Christ, that would be insufficient. You need to do more. It's Jesus plus these things that makes you spiritual and mature. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. It's in Christ you've been made mature, in the doctrine of Christ. But these men said, if you don't do this, these things, you will either lose your salvation Or you will never be enlightened, or you will never find God's favor and rest. So do what we say. Follow our directions, or you will be a failure spiritually. That's pretty heavy manipulation. It's especially heavy to these people who had just came out of paganism. And they they want to serve God, and they want to do whatever the pastor teaches them to do, which is a good thing, if it's a biblical thing. So Paul writes to help guide them. It's, it's God intervening on the behalf of the Colossians here and on our behalf. Paul writes contrary to what the false teachers were teaching. 
especially when you look at 2.20 to 23. Look what he says there. He basically says there that, that all human efforts that we exercise, no matter how faithful we think we are outwardly, it will never transform us inwardly. It will never transform a sinful heart. Look what it says. He says this in 2.20, if, if with Christ you died to the el- elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Outwardly, this looks impressive. This is what he's saying. In promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity uh, to the body. But they are of, what's he say, little value? He says they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He states that your heart will not be transformed by asceticism, by harsh treatment of the body, by ritualism. Your heart, he'll go on to say and argue, will be transformed, though, by Christ, by, by simply trusting in Christ, by focusing your mind on what Christ has promised and accomplished. Church, it is that that changes us. It is that that fuels sanctification and change in our hearts. We see that further in Colossians 3, verse 1. Paul's giving quite a different message from that of the false teachers here. But he doesn't doesn't ignore the fact that there should be change. But it's change that follows the cross. Change that follows looking to Christ. And it's change that is out of thanksgiving rather than legalism. Look what he says in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, immediately he says, look to Jesus, your new life. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Then he says this, set your mind, it means to fix your mind, lock your mind in on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, speaking of outward forms of religion. That's what he's talking about in context here. He said, here's why. Verse 3, for you have died. Spiritually, you died with Christ at the cross. Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of God on your behalf. Christ received your punishment on the cross. You died with him. And now he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So there's, there's no need for you to try to perform and obey the rituals and follow the commandments in the sense of trying to earn salvation. Christ has obtained it for you. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears... Then you also will appear with him in glory. And he has them focused on what Christ has accomplished for them. Then he says, following that thought, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He's talking about sanctification here. Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But remember, you're, you're dead in Christ. You're alive now in Christ. He says, but now, in verse 8, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Hmm. He's saying... If if your mind is set on Christ, on the things that are above, what God has promised, what God has provided, it's those, those things, that truth about Christ, if it's dominating your life, it will change your life. It's not the changes you perform that makes you closer to God or that makes you holy to God. It's looking to what Christ has performed, what Christ has done, that changes your mind and motivates your labors. Paul's own life is an example of that. Paul himself said, I work harder than all the rest of the disciples, all the rest of the apostles. But it's not I, it's Christ who works in me. In other words, I'm so focused on Jesus, all I want to do is live for him, serve him, labor for him, toil for him, suffer for him. And that's really him at work in me. But it shows you the progression comes from salvation. 
It doesn't obtain salvation. Sanctification is the fruit of regeneration, not the root. It is what flows out of the heart that is fixed on the Savior's work. And it should be that which is coming out of us thankfully, gratefully for what Christ has done for us spiritually, right? Look at Colossians 2.1. Here in this, in this very beginning of, of chapter 2, he kind of repeats what he just said. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. He's saying, look, I'm struggling for them. But, but he, he reminds us, as you back up into chapter 1 a little bit there, he reminds us that he's, he's struggling as a result of Christ's energy that's at work in him. It's, it's Jesus' desire to reveal the good news to the church, to comfort the church, to guide the church. And, and Paul is just happy to be his instrument. Paul had, had fixed his mind on Christ so intently that it changed him immediately and visibly and physically. And he was willing to die for this Savior who bought him, right? Now, now we need to stop and think about this sometimes. This is not theory here. This is not something that was impressive about Paul. This is something that we can all look to and say, I, I want that kind of passion. I want that kind of sanctification where I forget about me and all I see is Christ before me. So that I would serve and I would suffer and I would toil and I would struggle for the sake of his body and for the glory of his name. You see that happening in Paul's life again and again and again. I don't think he's the exception. I think this is his doctrine. This is what he taught over and over again. As a result of salvation, sanctification. It's progressive in nature. But it is the evidence of regeneration. In verse 2 of of chapter 2, you can see that Paul is not saying that he's, he's toiling to obtain or even maintain his salvation. He's saying, I'm toiling out of the joy that I have in sharing this message with others. Look what he says. Here's why I do it, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. It's the love of Christ he's talking about there. So that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He says, this is why I do this. I want you to know him and the power of his love and the work of his spirit in us. He wants all who hear him to be saved and to be spiritually enlightened by God's written revelation, not by legalism, not by human effort or mystical visions, He's refuting the false teachers in these declarations. He's saying in Christ, in the doctrine of Christ that you have received in my letter, you have all that you need for spiritual enlightenment, for spiritual maturity, for assurance of salvation. It is not through your human efforts that you're going to obtain this. You're going to obtain this as you receive Christ, according to God's written revelation. That was the threat there at This church, people came in and said, I have a word from God for you today. Though it was not written, though it was not in sync with the rest of God's written revelation, they claimed it was a divine revelation. And Paul said, it is contrary to what has been written, what has been given through the apostles. Therefore, it is insufficient. You have all that you need in Christ as you have received him in this revelation that is given in Scripture. 2 through 4 reveals to us that his passion was to preach the word and to struggle at doing so, even if it cost him physically, so that the church would be encouraged by the gospel and not be captured by the false teachers, by self-made religion, asceticism. Asceticism and and, and self-made religion and human effort always leads to legalistic discouragement. Because, saints, you're always going to fail. You're always going to fall short of God's requirements. If you try to keep the law, you must keep the entirety of the law from the heart into the outward keeping of those observances. No one can do that. Therefore, you're setting yourself up for failure. It doesn't mean we don't love the law, that we don't pursue the law, that we don't honor God through the keeping of the law that Christ did for us. 
by looking to Christ as our righteousness, trusting in his obedience. In that, I will never face discouragement. I will always see my righteousness in Christ's obedience. Therefore, I will have encouragement. And that's what Paul's wanting to do here. But he also doesn't want to be misunderstood. He's not calling for antinomianism, which means to be against the law of God. He's not saying, you know, you have a license to sin now that you're in Christ. Just go live it up. He's not saying that at all. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. So we have verse 5 laid out here before us to help kind of remind us of why, he, why he's going to uh, eventually give us an exhortation in verse 6. He says, I already see the work of sanctification in this church in verse 5. He, he's saying in verse 5 that he already sees that they are standing firm in the faith. That he is, he is saying that they are pursuing God in good order, biblical order. He, he's not saying that they have no obligation to be holy or live differently or to serve God faithfully. Not at all. He, he's, he's just wanting them to know the difference between legalistic observance and thankful obedience. So he praises them a little bit in verse 5 for the evidence of their salvation, for their Evident sanctification. Look what it says in verse 5. For, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, he's commending them. He's, he's, he's saying, look, I already see that as you have been focusing on Christ, apart from these false teachers, you're standing firm. Standing firm is a military term, or, or there's a firmness of your faith he speaks of here. It's a military term that means not to be moved one inch. They've dug their cleats into the ground like a Roman soldier. They will not be moved. He says, I've already seen this. This is evident that God is at work sanctifying you, that you are looking to Christ. And it's just looking to Christ that accomplished this. It's not keeping these legalistic observances. Then in verse 6, he begins to exhort based on everything he has said up until this point. And, and I've struggled in the past trying to understand verse 6. And maybe you have too. Maybe you haven't thought about it. Maybe you need to. Um, I've struggled in the past because I've thought, what, is, what does this even mean to walk in Christ? Um, why, why this exhortation? Why, why does he give this to them at this point? How do I get this? Balanced out correctly. How do I not do what the false teachers say, yet do what Paul says without becoming legalistic myself? I mean, isn't this difficult sometimes? I mean, do what the Bible says, but don't be legalistic about it. I struggle with that. I'm weak in my faith, and that's probably why. But I think a lot of us struggle with that. We have exhortations to obey God's commands, and at the same time, he says, look to Christ. He did it all for you. Okay, how do I get this balance? I think... Verse 7 is going to help us with that, but let me talk about verse 6 and explain to you what I know about the Apostle Paul and his doctrine. Paul is very familiar with the fact that sanctification, or the way we walk out our faith in Christ, simply reveals our salvation. It is not the root, as I said, of our salvation. It is the fruit of our salvation. Paul knows that sanctification is the fruit of regeneration. He knows that sanctification is the outward evidence of the inward transformation that took place when God took away our stony hearts and gave us the heart of Christ. He knows this very well. And he wants us to understand that that's why we should serve Christ obediently. Not to obtain some other favor or to get a softened heart or a new heart, but rather because we have been given a new heart, one that wants to please God, one that reflects our Savior himself. Therefore, he says in verse 6, as you received Christ as Master, Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. Walk in him. Walk worthy of him. Um, live in him. That's what this means. Uh, the Greek text implies this. I'll give you the Greek implication here of this verse. Christians are commanded 
to conduct their lives in accord with the teachings about Christ that they received from the written revelation of God's word. That's what Paul is implying here. They're they're being commended, they're being exhorted to conduct their lives in accord with what Paul has already written in chapter 1 and chapter 2 up to this point. Here's my paraphrase of of verse 6. Paul is saying, Since you are reconciled to God through Christ the Lord, then conduct your life in such a way that it testifies to the truth about Christ that you received in my letter. That's what he's saying. Therefore, as you receive Christ as Lord, where did they receive Christ as Lord from? Paul's letter, Paul's doctrine that's already been written, already been given to them. They had already read this up to this point. You see, hermeneutics comes into play here. We need to understand how to rightly divide the word of truth. The context of chapter 1 explains the intent of Paul's exhortation here. Some people read verse 6 and say, As you receive Christ as Lord, so walk in Him. Oh, I received this warm feeling. I remember the day I walked the aisle. I remember this emotional experience. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's not saying... As, as you were moved emotionally, obey Jesus willingly. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, as you have received the doctrine of the Messiah, Jesus, the Lord, walk in him. Live in light of who he is according to what you have received. How was Christ received by the Colossians? Again, this has nothing to do with how they received an emotional experience. How were they receiving Christ? Chapter 1 says Christ was received as, number one, this is not the outline, but I'm just going to tell you this. Number one, Christ was received as their redeeming king. Number two, Christ was received as their sovereign creator. Number three, Christ was received as their spiritual leader. And number four, Christ was received as their reconciling savior. That's what Paul's talking about. In other words, Paul's saying in verse 6, live in line with the one who sought you, the one who protects you, the one who guides you, and the one who bought you. That's the fuel of sanctification. Knowing who your master is. Knowing what he's done to secure you. That sets you free to serve him without fear. In essence, what Paul's saying is this. Now, now, that, now that you know who Jesus truly is and what Jesus alone has accomplished to save you from your sins, according to that, go live your new life. Go live your new life with complete assurance and joy, knowing that he's never going to lose you, never going to hurt you, never going to mislead you, never going to reject you. Go live your life in light of that. How are you going to live in light of that? Are you going to live a life of licentiousness and sin and debauchery, knowing that you're saved by grace? No, not at all. He's saying, focus on your master and you will live differently in this world. You'll you'll show these false teachers what sanctification looks like. It is from the inside out because of regeneration, not from the outside in. It doesn't change you to conform to, to rituals. But Christ has already given you a new heart, and it's going to spill out into your life. It's going to overflow. It's going to abound through the teaching you receive about Christ. See, the the difference for us to understand sanctification, we need to understand this. The difference between the heart of a legalist and the heart of a Christian is that the legalist seeks to obtain or maintain God's favor by their obedience. And the Christian seeks to be obedient because they have received God's favor through faith in Christ's obedience. That's the difference. That is an eternal difference. One is a works-based salvation. The other one is a Christ-based salvation. Christ-centered salvation. And I truly believe that that will conform us to his image when we think about that. But again, like I said earlier, I am weak and I am prone, prone to wander. 
because of my flesh. I am prone, and maybe you are too, I am prone to try to please God through my deeds or make up for my mistakes by my deeds rather than resting in Christ's work and his forgiveness. I find it easier, but not biblical. I find it easier when I fail to serve God biblically or when I sin against him spiritually I find it easier for me to try to think of some things to do that will make me look better in his sight. That will make me feel better for the wretched things I had previously done. Rather than running immediately to the cross of Christ and throwing my hands down before him saying, Oh God, I am a sinner and I need the promise of your forgiveness once again. And in that I want to be conformed into your image, changed by your grace. It's easier for me to do the the outward thing, though. Because I do believe the flesh and the spirit are in battle. And as long as I'm trying to perfect what God started spiritually, if I'm trying to perfect it in the flesh, I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to be focused on me rather than focused on serving my Savior. See, sanctification, I think, begins with self-forgetfulness. If we're focused on our sanctification and not on Christ and His accomplishments, we're never going to be able to grow as God desires us to grow because we're so busy worrying about our position rather than resting in our position that Christ has secured for us forever. So when I read this text, when I read through places like this that that seem to be giving us a warning against legalism and telling us that at the same time you need to be obedient, you need to be doing these things for the sake of Christ's name, I struggle with this attitude that I have in my flesh. And I want to ask Paul a question. What's going, what's going to protect me from the legalistic pursuit of sanctification that the false teachers were introducing here? Even though I know you're saying it's rest in Christ, when I, when I start to follow obedience, I, I tend to wonder if I'm doing it out of legalism or out of delight. Paul, Paul helps us, I think, here. He, he helps us in chapter 2, verse 7. He helps protect us when we are weak and prone to wander into formalistic duty. He answers my question here. In this verse, I can see how God cultivates, God cultivates sanctification in our hearts and protects us at the same time from legalism. In Colossians 2, 7, this will be your outline. Paul tells us that our sanctification is, number one, rooted in the truth you've received about Christ. Paul says our sanctification is, number two, built up in the truth you have received about Christ. And number three, he says our sanctification is established in the truth you have received about Christ. And fourthly, our sanctification is abounding in the truth you have received about Christ. Listen to verse 7. Let me read 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received, or as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. The word faith there is speaking of doctrine, and it's the doctrine about Christ in context. Established in the doctrine that was just taught to you. Just as you were taught, he says. Abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 6 says, Therefore, based on everything I wrote from chapter 1, verse 1, up until now, walk in Christ. Based on what you have received about Jesus, walk in him. When we, when we focus on what Christ has accomplished, it, it changes the direction of our hearts. It causes us to want to live for his praise, not for our own sanctification. If, if I see growth in myself spiritually, if I see sanctification taking place, I have a tendency to boast in that. Yes, I did good. I rejected this. I, I abstained from that. And then all of a sudden I find myself in this dilemma. 
But when, when, when I begin to set my eyes on Christ and just be fixed upon what he has done, sanctification trails behind. And I'm not concerned about it. I'm not looking at it. I'm not focused on it. I'm looking at how I can serve Christ. I want to serve Christ. I need to serve Christ. And as a result, in the wake of that, holiness, obedience, joy, assurance, transformation takes place. That's what we see happening as, as Paul commends the Colossians to receive Christ biblically and be changed as they focus on him totally. In verse 2, A, Paul says, our sanctification, our walk, right, is contextually, number one, rooted in the truth. It is rooted in the truth about our redeeming king. Our walk is nourished by knowing who Jesus is personally. That's what the Colossians had received in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. It says, God, speaking of the Father here, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is personal redemption, personal forgiveness for our sins. If we're rooted in that truth, if we're rooted in the the love of Christ that we see explained even in that revelation right there, it will cultivate Joy-driven sanctification in our hearts. God, the Son, King Jesus, died for us personally. If we see that love, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand that that's the root of our redemption and that is the fuel of our sanctification. If he loved me when I was at my worst, then he's not going to leave me now as I walk in what he's accomplished. As I look to what he's provided. He's not going to let me stray. He is the good shepherd who brings me back. He'll never let me go. That, that should cultivate joy in our hearts. And, and the joy isn't fixed on, look, I'm changing. The joy is fixed on Christ. Look what you have done for me, a sinner. You have transferred me from darkness and deception and deceit and depravity into the kingdom of light and grace and forgiveness. Church, I think that's what God wants to remind us of as we read Colossians. He wants to remind us that our walk with Christ is built up by this nourishing revelation He has already given us, not by what we do in the flesh. Look further in Colossians 2, 7b. Secondly, Paul reminds us That our sanctification, our walk, contextually, number two, is built up in the truth. It's built up in the truth about our sovereign creator. Our walk is built up in knowing who Christ is sovereignly. That's what the Colossians had received about Christ here in Colossians 1.15. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. The sovereign one, the creator of the universe, took on flesh. To take our place. To become our substitute. As as you think about this kind of sovereign care and compassion. I believe it will cultivate humble sanctification. You, You will look to the creator who became flesh. And lived among us. To die our death on the cross. To atone for our sins, not his own. That will bring humility to your hearts. And it's hard. It is hard to be proud at the foot of the cross. It's there that we see what our sins accomplish. See, looking at the cross will transform the way I walk. Looking at what Christ the creator did in my place changes the way I relate to other Christians. I am a forgiven sinner. 
And when other sinners hurt me, I cannot say, well, I'm better than you. No, I am forgiven by God's grace. And therefore, I want to forgive you as Christ has forgiven me. I have no right to judge you. I have been judged and found guilty in Christ. Yet he died for me, atoned for me, and he set me free from my guilt and condemnation. And I want that to be your hope. See, that that cultivates a humble kind of sanctification that makes you effective in the world. But it comes from a written revelation of who Christ is. See, that's why the Lord's table, I think, is so important for us even as, as we came to it this morning. We're focusing on Christ. And what does it do? It brings up the sin in your heart, does it not? Last night, this week, this morning, as you're thinking about partaking of the Lord's Supper, you were examining the heart, right? Oh, God, I, I, I hate this thing that I'm, I am, I'm prone to, to wander into. God, please remove this thing. God, please show me that Christ has, has covered this thing so that I would move forward and serve you. And, and that, that, that coming to the table shows you Christ. And as you begin to look at that and you begin to think about what he has done for you, you're no longer looking at how much of a wretch you are. You're looking at how forgiven you are in Christ and how great his grace is. And therefore you're rejoicing, you're, you're pursuing him. And the next thing you know is when that temptation comes up in your life again, you say, but I, I want to commune with Christ without hindrance. I want to serve him without going through this, this turmoil and the struggle of repentance at times. I, I just want to simply be obedient because I want to know him. I want to commune closely to him. When you're built up in the truth about who it is that died for you, atoned for you, keeps you, holds you together, not just physically but spiritually. He's not just the, the creator of the planets. He's the creator of your salvation. He is the sustainer of your salvation. That will create humble sanctification in our life. That's what God reminds me of as I come to Colossians and look through this entirety of this text. Our sanctification is built on the nourishing revelation of Christ. And it's established firmly on the eternal truth of who Christ is. We see that explained a little bit more in 2.7. Paul goes on to remind us there that our sanctification, our walk, is to be established in the faith. And again, contextually, he's talking about the faith that has been delivered to you. The once for all delivered to the saints faith that Jude talks about. That is the truth that he has already written to them in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. He, he says, your sanctification, your walk with Christ is established in the truth about who he is. He is your spiritual leader. That's what the Colossians understood about Christ, according to Paul's revelation in 1.18 to 20. He's going to tell them in verse 6 and 7 that their walk is strengthened or established in the faith because they Understand who Christ is authoritatively according to God here in verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or have first place. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The revelation of Christ's authority here is meant to cultivate reverential sanctification in us. His, his authority, his leadership is what strengthens us, knowing that we have not been left to wander. We have one who is guarding us and guiding us and building us up in the faith and directing us according to his word. We should be in awe. Now think about this. The one who is called the preeminent one, verse 19, the one who is called God in the flesh, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. He is your leader. He is guiding his church. 
He will not let us wander. He will bring us back into the fold. He will guide us into all truth through His Spirit. As we continually focus on that, as we continually teach this, it will have a transformational effect on our lives. Listen, churches, as we go out into this world, we need to remember who we represent. Who is our master? Who is our leader? Are we doing our thing or are we so in love with our leader that we want to follow his direction? No matter where it leads us. If you have that kind of heart, if you're looking at the truth of Scripture, I think it will cultivate a reverential sanctification in our lives. As we think about the promises that Christ, our leader, has given us, we should have great confidence in this world of darkness. Look with me in Jude 20. Jude talks about the importance of establishing the truth, the faith. Because there were some who wanted to come in and they wanted to distort the truth. He says, you've been given a once for all delivered to the saints faith, truth. Stand firm in it. Be established in this. Because as you stand in the truth, it has an amazing effect on your life. As you continually walk in the truth, it will build up your faith. It will build up your understanding of who our leader is. And that should cause us to be in awe this morning. In verse 20, he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, most holy doctrine about who God is, about what God has accomplished, about what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, what the Spirit of God is doing and sealing us and keeping us. And you are praying in the Holy Spirit, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, it doesn't mean... Make yourselves stay in the love of God. No, he says, understand you are in the love of God. Keep looking at that. Keep looking at the promises, building yourself up in this doctrine, trusting in this, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh Now, he says, to your spiritual leader, to him, Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, that that last passage, 24, 25 That last thought of Jude should cultivate reverential sanctification in us. You, you are kept from stumbling by Jesus. You are made blameless through Jesus. You will be presented as his glorious work. That should cultivate joy in us. You will be kept by the one who has all majesty and dominion and authority who had it before the world was created, who will have it after the world is recreated. That's what fuels sanctification. Lastly, back back in Colossians 2.7d, the last part, Paul tells us that our, our sanctification, our sanctification, he says this, is, is or our walk is established by abounding in the truth. Look what it says. Just as you were taught, abounding in the truth, or abounding in thanksgiving, rather, abounding in thanksgiving about the established faith, right? That's what he's talking about. Walk in him. Our sanctification is to be abounding in the truth. Abounding, um, overflowing in the truth. See, as you are in the truth of who our Savior is, you will abound in sanctification. It will, it will cause you to overflow in obedience because you are caught up in the wonder of who your Savior is. Our walk, our Christian walk, our sanctification is fueled by focusing 
on the doctrine of not just who Christ is, but what Christ did sacrificially for us. That was the doctrine that the Colossians had received from Paul that he's talking about. Therefore, he says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, according to what he wrote in verse 21 of chapter 1, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why did he reconcile us? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The revelation of Christ's reconciling work, his sacrificial work, is what will cultivate abounding thanksgiving in our sanctification. It'll be a thankful sanctification that we express as we think about what we have received through Christ. He, in his body of flesh, died our death. Why did he die our death? Why did he live our life? Here's why you are saved. It is to make him look glorious. That is the reason you are regenerated. Your life is a testimony of the power of Christ in you. He did this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, I realize he's talking about in the future. But he's also talking about, like Peter, that we are to be holy, for he is holy. We are his ambassadors We are to be different from the world around us. We are to be sanctified. This is God's will for you. Flee sexual immorality. Put away coarse jesting. Love one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Because Christ did all that for us. He he took our place and he gave us his life. And our lives should testify to that. Church, sanctification, I truly believe, is cultivated as we ponder our sins and Christ's reconciling work. When you consider your your sinful thoughts that you expressed this morning, even before you got here, when you consider your your evil intentions, your deceitful actions, and then, then all of a sudden you realize that due to God's grace and Christ's sacrifice, those Those sins are no longer held against you. That will promote sanctification. That is the fuel of our sanctification. The more we focus on our Savior, the more we hate our sin, the more we love holiness, the more we want to serve Him. Focusing on the cross puts our sins to death. He does that because we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, He has secured us. He has secured our sanctification. He has secured our glorification. Sanctification, let me just end with this. Sanctification is the inward joy of the redeemed sinner that overflows into all our decisions. It's the inward joy of redeemed sinners that begins to transform our minds, dominate our thoughts, and lead our actions. Sanctification is that inward joy that we have been forgiven that changes our our desire to study God's Word and to go out and do evangelism. Sanctification, we know ultimately, is fueled by one thing. It is fueled by God's revelation of who Jesus Christ is. God's word, God's word, his revelation roots us in his love and causes his love to flow through our lives. God's word builds up our confidence in who he is and cultivates humility in our lives. God's word alone, not anything that we do, but what he has done and what he has said, God's word establishes reverence for his directions. And it cultivates a desire to obey them. 
in our lives. God's word teaches us why we should abound in thanksgiving. We should abound in thanksgiving because we have been reconciled by Christ himself. We've been saved to become his testimony. His ambassadors, holy and set apart for his glory. Church, I believe that God wants to cultivate that kind of thankful, joy-driven sanctification in us as we as a church submit to his written revelation, rest in his written revelation about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. So let me end with this. Based on what Paul has written, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord according to God's word, let's walk in him. Let's do so joyfully and thankfully this morning for God's glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. For in it, we, we come to know you, your love, your authority, your compassion, your justice, your righteousness, and your forgiveness in Christ. We need no other word. We need no other direction other than what you have given us in Scripture. It is in Scripture that we have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, our our Savior, our leader, our sovereign creator, our redeeming King. We cannot add to His works. And God, I pray we never try. I pray, though, as we we focus upon what He has accomplished, the testimony of Your power and grace will be seen in our sanctification as You progressively conform us to the image of Christ, the one we're focused upon. I pray that You are honored and You are praised and that the lost around us are led to Christ, the Savior of sinners, who saves to the utmost those who repent of their sins and trust in His work and who He is. God, that is our desire. We want to reflect that truth in our lives. Let us be fixed upon that, not our own growth in sanctification, so that, so that we don't become legalists. God, I pray that you make us thankful people. And in the wake of our thankfulness, I pray that there is holiness and obedience that reflects the power of Christ at work in us. I pray this, Lord, for the good of your church and for the glory of Jesus' name.